On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, the average home price in Hamilton just came out for March. You will fall out of your chair when you hear this if you don't know it already. We are closing in on a million dollar average home price in Hamilton. What is going on? Rob Golfie is going to join us to talk about this. And Don Robertson joins us. Lots of stuff to talk about from the Houston Astros complaining about being heckled to coaches that seem to be not wanting to coach the way they should be coaching to all kinds of stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Rob Golfie, you hear Rob Golfie Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock here on 900 CHML. Uh, you see his signs all over the place. You know him as one of Hamilton's leading real estate agents. He joins us now. Rob, how are you today? Good morning. Uh, sorry, not good morning. Good afternoon, <laughs> uh, Scott. How I get you? it. You know, it feels like that. I'm sure in the real estate market, it feels like you don't, don't know what end is up these days. Oh, I know. I know. It's been a, a crazy market for the last six months, and it's just incredible. Uh, Rob, when did you start? Heard of Rob, when did you start in real estate? What year? Uh, it was October of 1998, I think it was. 1998, okay. like January of 1999. Yeah, so I'm 20. Okay. I think it's 22 years, 23 years in the business now. But I used to, but I was an investor uh, prior to that. Um, so I, I bought like all around uh, the Durand area in Hamilton, like. Like I, I own properties on uh, Chatham Street, uh, 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 Melbourne, and Tuckett, and Brettlebane or Brettlebane, whatever they call it. <laughs> I, yeah. I own properties all around. So I knew that owning real estate was a key factor. Right, young at a very young age when I um, when I started buying and investing in real estate. Okay, but if I had told you in 1998 in October when you got into this that someday Hamilton's average house price would be nudging towards a million dollars, what would you have said? I, I would say you're crazy. There's no way it's impossible. And and we're here now, 21, 22 years later. In, incredible. Well, and you know, I went on realtor.ca the other day and what struck me and what, what, what I was stunned by was how the, the number of, when we talk about the average home being almost like 870, almost a million dollars closing in, the number of million dollar homes, legitimately million dollar homes, we're not just talking about mansions either. I mean, there are now, if you go on there, there's a lot of homes in the city that are a million or more. Oh, I know. It's it's incredible. Like, like people, million dollars is nothing. I remember the barrier when people were buying, uh, okay, 250, they didn't want to go higher than 250,000. I remember the $500,000 barrier. People didn't want to go over 500,000. Now we're at, at the million dollar mark. And, and it's, it's just, I, I, I can't believe it. And no one would ever think a townhouse could sell for six, 650. Now we got townhouses on the water selling for 1.6 million and we've sold them. Incredible. Like brand, the brand new townhouses facing the water. It's just, incredible how the market has been doing and i don't i don't know how long it's going to last but it uh but it's 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 been good for the sellers that's for sure well yeah for yeah i guess so i mean at a certain point does the money even matter and it sounds ridiculous you say a million dollars is nothing now and of course we know what you're meaning i mean a million dollars is still a million dollars it's a lot of money but in real estate you want to get in i mean that's not a crazy home once someone is looking at a house that's seven or eight hundred thousand dollars does it really matter other than their will their ability to get you know to get a loan but does it really matter if they go up to 900 or are they willing to do that now because it's just it's almost play money it's so silly it it seems that way like uh, it's funny though people are going in 
and let's say like a back split in Stony Creek um, listed at 700 and they get 850,000 for it. Like, like us people that live here in Stony Creek, Hamilton, um, I mean, they're bidding for it uh, also, but we got m- mostly outside people from outside the area that are bidding like crazy with their Toronto agents. Sometimes their Toronto buyers are coming this way and they're outbidding everybody by 50 to a hundred thousand. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, like I had one up on the West Mountain. The highest offer we had was 750, but the, the be- next best offer was 45,000 higher than that. So 750 then went to uh, uh, 795. So, so sometimes people people are overbidding too much because they've lost so much in the past. Like they they went one offer after another, and they're, and they're losing out on other opportunities. So now what's happening is people are bidding. Uh, overly aggressively and 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 they're and, and i don't think they have to but because they lost so many times on other bids that they're just saying forget it let's just go in and let's make sure we get this house we're sick and tired of looking and we're just gonna we're just gonna go full tilt on this one and that's what's happening like the ones that are bidding heavy heavy on it are the ones that are are fed up and they just said i just want to get this house and get this uh looking for homes over with and and that's why people are getting that is this in? Is this possibly sustainable though? Like I see, we're going up twenty percent a, you know, a month or something. I mean, the numbers are crazy. Is is there any way this can keep going? It's got to stop, right? It, it, it is. You know what? So the month of March, we were averaging uh, over twenty-two sh- uh, showings per sale. So now the first week of April, uh, we're already seeing it, it's dropped quite a bit. So we don't know if that's because of the Easter long weekend. But we'll find out uh, next week if, if, if the number of showings per sale is going to uh, rise back to the level that it was in March and February and March. But it will cool down because we are noticing uh, buyer fatigue is uh, taking effect. We are noticing buyers have left the, uh, the market and, and sitting on the sidelines. Um, so that is happening. Um, before, when people were holding offers, uh, waiting, you know, five to seven days. Uh, we're, we're we're taking offers on whatever day. Uh, we're finding that there's less offers being submitted. Uh, before we used to get 10, 15, 20, 30 offers. Now it's coming down to what, uh, maybe five offers, three offers, and some and some 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 people are not getting any offers because people are getting fed up with of, of uh, agents holding offers. So it, you have to be very careful now at what how you price your home. Uh, I think the cooling off period is going to start happening um, in uh, probably uh, this month in April. Um, it it won't prices won't come down. They're going to they're going to stay strong, but it, but you're not going to see many people uh, uh, bidding against each other because they're just fed up about doing that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rob, I got to wonder when, when we're talking about the number of people that you've had, well, you talk about all the showings you've had and the competition and the number of people who are getting frustrated because they can't get a house. If once upon a time, it used to be that if you were putting your house up for sale, you had to make sure that the basement didn't leak and that the ceiling was fine and that the windows didn't have a draft and that all everything was, you know, tickety boo because you wanted to make sure it was going to sell. If you're a seller now, do you even pay attention to that anymore? Or if there's a flaw, you say, well, they'll deal with it. I don't need to worry about that stuff. You know what? And that's what's happening. And that's the problem in this market. Uh, a lot of uh, sometimes first-time buyers, they're buying properties. They're buying properties faster than they're buying cars. So they're walking in. They go into the house, looking at it for an hour, walking out, 
typing up an offer and submitting it with no conditions, no, no financing, no home inspection. And, and then they'll move in and they'll have, there's a problem there. And, uh, and they can't do anything about it because they didn't put a home inspection clause. This is a scary time uh, for buyers buying because um, they're not, you know, they can't put a condition in there if they want the house. So they have to take the risk of possibly moving in to something that they may have to fix when they, uh, they move in. And that's, and that's the, the sad part about uh, this market for buyers is that it, it, they're moving into the unknown and, mm. and nobody's disclosing anything and they're just, people are buying and then, and it just, what are you going to do? You're going to chase them in court and it takes forever and, and it just costs a lot of money. But, uh, but could you win, uh, could I, you I, win a house? Could you buy a house these days in most cases, if you tried to put in a, a home inspection clause or would it be gone? You, you, you won't win. You won't win. If you put a home inspection clause in there and, uh, and you got, 10 other offers in front of you that without any clauses at all, they're, they're not going to look at a home inspection clause. Uh, it's a way out for the uh, buyer. And, uh, and it's, and you know, so buyer the sellers are looking for the sure thing. Uh, the key thing is uh, a lot of agents now uh, they're coming in with their uh, bank draft for their, from their buyers to make sure that, Hey, listen, I've got my bank draft with my offer. Uh, please, uh, you know, look at my offer. And, uh, and a lot of those ones, they get, uh, they get worked on first. They, uh, agents look at those ones because they know they got the bank draft with them and they're, and they're big bank drafts. Like they're big deposits, like 50,000, a hundred thousand, depending on the price point of, of the home, uh, that is selling. I don't know what the law is regarding real estate agents with this. If so, if, if you represent someone and they can't get a home inspection because they waive that clause, and you're the, let's say you're the selling agent and the home has a f- massive defect when it's bought. Is there any risk to the agent, either the buying agent or the selling agent that they could come back at you? If the agent knows about it, yes, there is a big risk because um, if the home seller uh, doesn't mention it, but if let's say, the, let's say um, like I walk through a house and I, and I always ask, do you have any issues in this house that may cause somebody to have uh, not buy it. And, and I said, do you have any issues with water problems? And if they do, we disclose that we, we send a, an email, uh, or we disclose it on the uh, remark, the realtor remark saying, Hey, we got a beautiful house here. There is some moisture in the Northwest corner of the property, uh, on heavy rainfalls, um, you know, and stuff like that. They should disclose it. Uh, it makes a big difference um, when the homeowner moves in. Now, if there's something there that they're purposely hiding, uh, they will lose in court. If they, like if a homeowner, a new buyer walks in and they move in and they find that there's issues and they know that the previous owner had issues with this and didn't disclose, there, there could be a problem there, especially the way the market's going right now. Judges, they're going to favor the buyer because if the seller knew about it, they will, they, they're going to lose. So they're better off disclosing all the information and not having the headaches uh, of, of after moving out of, of somebody trying to come after them for stuff that they uh, did, hid from uh, the buyer. There is also, we only have a minute or so left here, but we've been hearing talk from City Hall in the last number of weeks uh, about discussions with people in the community about do we how much more sprawl do we want in this city? And, you know, I think that's a fair discussion to be having. The flip side of that, though, is if we decide we're going to curtail the amount of sprawl, that's going to curtail the amount of new houses that can be built. That's only going to make the prices go up even further, is it not? Oh, it will. It will. I, I think what, what the city has to do is 
they definitely have to open it up and make it easier for the builders to get more approvals uh, to develop. Um, there's more people looking at buying houses than there is people selling. And, and once they do that, they'll, they'll control the market. The market will ease off. But if they're making it difficult for the builders to get approvals and making it lo- take longer for them to do it, they're, they're just going to make it difficult for uh, buyers to, to buy homes. So they, they've got to change that, make it quicker and, and uh, make it easier so that it'll, it'll control the market better for, uh, for the buyers. A lot more I wish we could talk about. That is Rob Golfie. You can hear him Saturday mornings here on 900 CHML. Always appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Have a good night. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the headline here, and again, I'll say it again because I just find it stunning. $872,000 average home price in Hamilton now. And, you know, to that last point about sprawl, uh, look, I, I, I completely understand the idea that we don't want to have homes everywhere. I get that for sure. We want farmland. We don't, you know, it's, it's a fair discussion to have to say how much is too much. But there is a second side to it. And I'm not sure even which side I haven't given enough thought at this point to and argued with myself enough to come up with an answer. Because when you say we can't build anymore, that is going to make the prices of homes go up even more. You have, you know, there's an argument on each side. And I don't know which is the right one at this point. Not in this market. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner, operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and the 2014 Dundas Citizen of the Year, soon to be 2021 Dundas Citizen of the Year, joins us on a Tuesday. So everything's going to be thrown off and at least once, Don, over the next hour, I'm sure I will say Monday. But anyway, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Can I try and answer the question? As long as you don't get it right. (laughs) Brain cells. Brain cells, yes. Brain cells would be divided by two. That that that's probably not the right answer, but it's a true answer. That's uh, that's like Cliff Clavin on Cheers. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, good. Got a question for you, and and I wasn't going to talk about this. We got a lot of things to get to. A full house today on uh, on stuff going on in sports. Do you know who Rujned Odor is? I used to. I forget now. He was the second baseman for the Texas Rangers that he got into a fight with Jose Bautista. Remember the guy who punched Bautista? And so he's, you know, anyway, after he punched Bautista, uh, maybe it's a sign of uh, something. I know his career went right into the toilet. And last year he was entirely useless. And so the Rangers cut him. Well, the Yankees picked him up today. And uh, so the Texas Rangers put out a tweet saying, hey, thanks for everything, Rujnid. And they have a bunch of photos of highlights of his career. There weren't a lot of them, but included in the Texas Rangers official tweet with the highlight pictures is him slugging Bautista. Is that funny? If you're, especially if you're a Rangers fan, is that funny and clever and great? Or is that classless for an organization to do that? Probably both. Not trying to sound like a politician, but I mean, I can get the humorous side of it. I mean, you can take it that, there were so few highlights that was actually one of them. Now it may have been a bigger highlight to the fans than his baseball acumen, but you could take it that way, or you could take it as it's a little bit disrespectful, especially when the Jays are in town. Well, I thought about that too. I thought, you know, first of all, I kind of wish Bautista was still on the Jays because, uh, 
you know, in, in the past, when, whenever people would remember, there was a guy named Darren O'Day who used to pitch for the Orioles and used to plunk Bautista regularly. And almost invariably, the next time up, Bautista would homer against him. He was one of those guys that just seemed to find motivation when people would give him the gears. And uh, I kind of wish he was there. But anyway, you know, I, I thought about this and, and and my inclination is, yeah, it's kind of a classless, cheap thing to do. And Odor, if the highlight of your career is not even a baseball highlight, you know, all right. But on the, on the flip side, I got thinking if that had been a guy for a Toronto team, we'd probably all think it was hilarious. So that's, you know, hence my answer, both context depends, depends on what lens you're looking at it with. Right. For sure. I mean, the, the, um, remember the, uh, the situation where Ty Domi fought the guy who fell into the penalty box, all the Toronto fans thought it was hilarious that Domi, you know, wailed on him and everyone in Philadelphia says Domi was a thug who should have been, should have been arrested. So, you know, I context, it's all, it's all relative on where you stand. I agree. Speaking of that, another baseball story that is out today, which I find really interesting is the Houston, you know, the, everyone knows the story of the Houston Astros. A few years ago, they were in the world series and the story about banging on the garbage pails to cheat, to tell the batters if a fastball was coming or change up or a curveball, And they got caught, but never really paid a penalty. Their manager got suspended for a year. The team lost some draft picks, but the players involved skated away without any kind of penalty, which has infuriated most players in major league baseball and most fans as well. And last year, because there were no fans really in the stadiums, they didn't have to deal with the outpouring of grief from people in parks. Well, this year, people are back in ballparks, not full houses, except in Texas, but not full houses, but there are people there. And in three or four games already, Houston has been absolutely getting it, Don. They have had signs everywhere with people calling them cheaters and booing. And when one of their players gets plunked by a pitch, the fans are giving them a pitcher a standing ovation. And yesterday in the game, someone threw an inflatable garbage pail onto the field and then followed that up by throwing a real garbage pail onto the field. And I don't think this is only four, three, four games in, and I don't think there's a chance this lets up all year long. Well, Dusty Baker, who's their new manager, came out and he has lost it now. He says, this is outrageous. The baseball has to do something. Fans are being un-American and it's all terrible, blah, blah, blah. If you were Dusty Baker and your team was getting given this grief all the time, is it not just about the worst move you could make to complain about it? Is this not just throwing fuel on the fire for everyone at every park now? There is nothing worse he could have done. He should have taken it internal and said, every park we go into and they do that, we're going to shove it right up their butt. You know what I mean? I, I would use it as motivational, but you're right. Couldn't be a worse thing. Had something similar happen to me when I was refereeing and it all went wrong and it'll never be corrected with them. Like you can't, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Next game, the signs are going to be directed at him and he had nothing to do with it. He wasn't even there. I mean, he wasn't there. He was the guy who came in afterwards. And what, what amazes me about this, Don, Dusty Baker is a, I mean, he's a, he's a great manager. He's been around for a long time. He's had amazing success by every account. He's a great person and a smart person. How did he not know? that when he comes and joins the Houston Astros, that he's walking into that. He had to know, didn't he? Sure he, sure he did. And 
the other thing he's doing is telling his players, I've got your back, right? So it may be a more internal thing. You're right. He's no dum-dum. He knows that he's flaming the fire here. But he also has his players back, right? And when you're coaching, Don Cherry was one of the best at it. You know, if you get your players back, they'll do almost anything for you. So it's a bit of a gamble for him to see how it goes. I don't know their record, but it can't. So far, great. So far, undefeated. Yeah. So it can't do a whole lot more than back your team up behind you. And the other thing is, so based on the fact they're undefeated, nobody likes that. So when they go into visiting parks, now they're winning. They assume they're cheating a game. So all I can say is this must make you smile from ear to ear because this is exactly what you wanted and expected. But I have a question for you because I knew this would come up at some point again and I was thinking about it when you were talking about that. Um, How in the world can the Houston Arrows bang on a drum to let a batter know what's going on all year and through the playoffs, if the guy at bat can hear it, does somebody on the other bench during the 160-plus games they played not say, what's going on with the garbage can over there? Well, it's a great question. smell a rat or pick it up? It's a great question, and I I don't think they did it. I don't know if they did it all year. They did it for an extended period and apparently through the playoffs. And you got to think that, I mean, if, if you're in a full stadium, where there is noise from crowds and everything else, if you're not listening for that sound, you may not hear it. It's like a lot of things. Like you can block out noises if you're concentrating or if you're listening to whatever else. If you're listening for... I've always wondered, Don, when you're watching a boxing match or a UFC match and there's a roaring crowd and everyone's yelling, how does the fighter hear his corner? But he does. And it's because he's listening specifically for that voice to pick up, to sort of cut through the din. I don't know how it all works, but they do. And so that's my only thought on this one is that if you're specifically listening for that sound, you can probably pick it up. If you're not listening for it, it would just blend into the background. I know, but it wasn't once or twice. It was an entire season. Yeah. And when they start playing the replays, when this whole situation got cracked open and then you go back and look at the video people notice it but again it's because now you're listening for that that you can pick it up and yes. oh. you know i i it would be really i mean look you got to believe everyone's listening for everything now um and if there's any funny noises people are going to be monitoring this but no i i i i'm i think it must have just been because they were just listening and nobody else was but i'll tell you you're right last week we talked about i think what we were talking about it last week about the you know yeah. about the, the astros and I, I don't have any problem with the fans reacting the way they are. I have no problem. In fact, I think it's great for baseball. I think it's fantastic when you have villains in a game. And I think that the Houston Astros are going to have to accept that they are now the villains and they're going to be for a long, long time. And I think it does a great amount for the life in the park and the interest in the game and ratings and selling tickets and everything else. If you know, I mean, it's the same when Barry Bonds was playing, um, you know, people at, in opposing parks, people would go just to boo Barry Bonds. And so I I think it's, I think it's not a bad thing for baseball that people are doing this. And I sincerely hope that major league baseball does not listen to Dusty Baker and doesn't tell the umpires or whatever else to really crack down on stuff. Let the fans 
and let the other teams have their say. That's the way it should work. Well, I listen, when the real McCoys, when we have big crowds in the playoffs or the regular season and the fans are booing us, I've had guys say, what are they booing us for? I said, I don't know, but they paid to get in, right? I mean, they, they pay for the right to do what they want. We never got booed much, but that's the way it is. I mean, you're right. There will be people that are so hateful and annoyed with Houston. They may mark that in the calendar to make sure that's one of the games they go to. Yeah, or or tune in, uh, you know, and, and like, you know, what's going to be one of the most unbelievably rated games on TV, I would bet you, is going to be when Houston goes to Los Angeles. Because now the fans in LA, the, the, the fans of the team that were cheated out of a World Series title, they get to have their say. And you know, at least I expect you know, that there are going to be more than a few Houston batters that get either buzzed up and in or get plunked in that by some Dodgers pitchers who, you know, especially if the games are, are a blowout either way, they are going to be like human pin cushions. And well, you, the fans you know, will love it, you know what, and they will love it. You know what might be really interesting? Because you know what happens when you go high and inside or you nail somebody? The bench is empty. Not like hockey. They're usually pushing matches. That one might be a real downy brook. There might be some guys in LA thinking we're going to even some scores on this thing. Yeah, like it might yep. be. There might be some. There might be some real scraps out there. So it might be worth tuning into. It will be. It will be for sure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, you have coached a lot of hockey. You've been around a lot of hockey. I heard something the commentators were talking about yesterday on the Leaf game. They're playing against Calgary. And Sutter is back coaching the Flames, a very, very successful NHL coach, won Stanley Cups in Los Angeles and had success everywhere he's gone. But one of the comments that was made a number of times was he doesn't he doesn't see the guys on his roster who can play the game the way he wants to play it. And when I heard that a couple of times, all I could think is, if you're the coach, is it not your job to design a game plan that works with the players you have rather than demanding all the players work into a game plan that you want to play? Yes, it is. He, uh, and I don't know, I didn't hear the context of, of uh, his comments, but yes, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, you, when you take a team over if, and he assuredly, cause he's a local guy, would have followed the flames well enough to see the type of players they have and the style they play, knowing full well the style of play he wants. And I'll tell you one thing, what he did was he said, I want a three-year contract because he likely figures I better get three years of pay out of this because it's not going to be much fun. If they don't like me, I'm still going to go back to the ranch and get paid. You're absolutely right. He had to have some understanding because he's a smart guy of the type of players they have and the type of game he wants to play. Now, he won't go in there and try and make all of them. He's too good a coach play that way. But he does know that his guys that are going to be in the trenches are going to have to play hard. They're going to have to play tough. And that's probably what he means, Scott. He means that, you know, if you're a third or fourth line guy, this is the style you got to play to be successful. And what he's doing is telling everybody that will listen to him, you can't win. I can't win with these guys unless we have those guys that can do that job. Let the high-end guys do what they need to do, but the bottom six, this is what they got to do, and the guys that are here can't do it. And he can't make them do it. That's the bad part. 
And I'm sure, I'm sure uh, the coach before him, whose name escapes me, Hamilton Bulldogs, Jeff Jeff uh, Ward, Jeff Ward, Jeff Ward, wanted the same thing, but they weren't doing it. And it doesn't matter how many Stanley Cups you won, or how many Jack Adams awards you've won, you can't make a guy do something that doesn't have in his heart that he can do. And it may be because they don't like that style because they don't. They're not tough enough. They won't play. They're scared to play that style and won't do it. And Sutter will only put up with so much of it. So if he wins the day, which he likely will, he's got as much experience as uh, their general manager does, you may see them make some pretty interesting moves at the trade deadline to get guys in that he wants. Well, yeah. I mean, the, like the team that he won the Stanley Cups with in Los Angeles were was a, a big, hulking, physical heavy team. I mean, they were, they didn't have a lot of Johnny Goudreau's and a lot of, you know, little skitty guys that, that sort of fly around the ice and they, they, they pounded you and they ground you down. And that seems to be the style he likes. But then you come into this team where the average weight is about 18 pounds. And, you know, it's, it, it's like, it seems like it's a marriage destined to fail when you've got a coach who likes to play one way and a bunch of guys on the roster who clearly when they have had success have done it a different way. And I don't quite, I don't quite get it. Well, Ward, uh, Ward wouldn't have had, sadly, wouldn't have had the stature that Sutter has. Right. Um, he, he, he doesn't have the, um, he doesn't have the resume. So it would be harder for him to get the message across. He was, He's had a couple shots at head coach, but nothing, you know, he hasn't been, he has won Stanley Cups. He wasn't, hasn't run one rounds in the playoffs. So he doesn't have the pedigree to demand that. Now they don't have much choice. Like you see, um, and I'd like to see the first six games before and the next six games, how much each time a guy like Lucic got. His confidence was waning a bit. I'll guarantee you he's getting a lot more play now than he did before. And Sutter's saying, you give me another five guys like that, and I'll show you how to win the North. Yeah, maybe. Although since he's come in, I mean, they 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 started out with a couple wins, and now they're two and eight in their last ten, and lost the last four, and they just look awful. And I, I say, I, I just I thought it was such an interesting comment because it always seems to me the great coaches are the ones. Or it's one of two situations: either you've hired the perfect coach because his style aligns with the guys you have, or he adjusts and makes, you know, like football, football is a perfect example of this where, you know, if you've got a mobile quarterback and you decide to say, you know, we're going to just play a a run game and a drop back passing game. That's idiotic. Why would you do that? Why would you not use the, the, the stuff that you have at your disposal and try and jam a square peg into a round hole? And, you know, I, I I look at, uh, you know, Sheldon Keefe in Toronto, I think has, Look how the team played for Babcock, who wanted to play a certain way, and I don't think they had the guys to do it that way. Now, I know the roster is a little bit different, but look at Keefe has come up with a style that seems to fit better with the skill players they've got, and look at the success they're having. Well, one of the things that, that Keith did, he put Marner and uh, Matthews together. Everybody wanted to see that because they're both high-end skilled guys, and he put them together. Right. And Babcock wanted to do it his way and wanted to mix out the talents a little bit. And now they're winning. And you're right. They, the, the, the style of play, but I don't think um, Sutter wants to take Johnny hockey away from his game. 
he's smart enough to let those guys do what they need to do to be successful. I don't think he's trying to turn those guys into bumpers and grinders because the skills got to come from somewhere. And those really good guys, you, you just kind of let them, got to let them go. You got to let them go do what they do. But if well, and who's Johnny Gaudreau going to bump and grind to? He's gonna, he couldn't even knock over the ref. No, well, if he wasn't looking, he might. Um, but you're right. But he'll let he'll let that go. It's the rest of it. And he's going to say we're we have to address the people that surround these players, and it hasn't been done. And the G, he can call he can make those comments all he wants. The last thing the GM can do is fire him now. You can't fire two coaches in one year, especially when you just gave somebody a three year contract. He's liable to end he, up as GM there, which he has been before, I think. Yeah, that that is that is far more likely. You're right, and especially in a year when there's no ticket money coming in, so you're just throwing money out the window at this point. You, yeah, you're not giving another guy the the gate. Uh, listen, very quickly uh, before we take another break, you are the Toronto Raptors right now. You are, I mean, I know they won last night on a buzzer beater, and I know they won a game last week by what was it, fifty three points? It was stupid, but you're a basically a bad team at this point. Do you very subtly tank on purpose to try and get a good draft pick? Or do you say, no, we're way too proud for that. Let's try and win every game and just miss the playoffs by one game. Uh, I think they got to try and win. They got six guys sitting out tonight for various reasons, and they're not going to be very good. They're not going to be able to do well, I don't think. And But I, I think they're too proud. They're too close too close to be from being NBA champions to tank. And it'd be a hard sell because people would almost have to know you're tanking. They're too good. I mean, if they'd have been healthy this year, they'd have probably made the playoffs in the East, but they've had COVID problems. They've got health problems. And I, I, but to answer your question, I think there's too much pride there to think they're going to throw in a towel. I hate, I hate tanking. I really do. I hate the idea because I think it ruins the, credibility and the honor of the game and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I can see what's going to happen here. And it happened with the Leafs how many times over the years where they go on a run at the end of the year and miss out on a really good playoff, a good draft pick and they miss the playoffs by a game. And then you say to yourself, okay, so what was the point of that? And, you know, <laughs> the question I guess is, is there a difference between tanking and giving your young, inexperienced players playing time, I think they may be one and the same thing. Although, you know, you could argue, well, we want to make sure, we want to see if this guy can play. We want to give him some experience. Is that the same as throwing in the towel? I don't know. Well, tanking is not letting Lowry play and not let your good guys play any more than five or six minutes a game. You can mix in the young guys to see how, and this is what I would do, and I would hope this is what Nick Nurse will do. He, you want to put those young guys that you think can play out with guys of caliber or Lowry to see if they can think the game smart enough. You want to see how they stack up with great players around them. You don't want to just put out the bad news bears. Then everybody will know. Yeah, you can't make it Buffalo Sabres obvious what's happening, but yeah. Well, then we uh, let's take a break. A tank, and they've been doing it since the start of the year. Well, yeah, I know. I, th- I think they have gone into, th- they're trying to make sure they have the, at this point, they're trying to make sure they have the highest percentage to win the draft. Irony of that is there's nobody that anyone's talking about who is a Austin Matthews or Connor McDavid to bail them out this time. So, you know, what are you going to get? I mean, this, this looks like the worst year to finish last. The juniors, we talked about it earlier. I know you got to go. Nobody has seen who is likely going to be number one or how good they are because they haven't seen them playing over a year. I mean, they haven't played the playoffs last year. 
and they're not playing at all this year. Most of them. It's going to be interesting. Somebody, somebody, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this closer to it, but somebody in the NHL draft this year is going to pick way late in the first round and end up getting the guy who maybe should have been in the top three, just because you haven't seen him. It could happen. I agree. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, uh, Thursday, two days from now, the Masters begins and a Masters golf tournament for the three people who may not have known. I don't know who wouldn't have known that, but anyway, just to be clear. The fact that the Masters got delayed from this time last year and was played in November, and now we're back at this four, four and a bit months later, does that in any way for you diminish the specialness or the excitement or anything about this tournament? Because everybody who plays golf loves the Masters. Does it take anything away that it was played just a few months ago? I, I, I think the event that uh, had something taken away from it, Scott, was the one in November. I don't think the Masters in April, um, which to me is the start of golf season up here. It's when people start cutting the grass. It's a sign of spring. And so I think this one's intact. I'm not sure that there wasn't a lot taken away from the one when you're playing the Masters in November. People are going, really? This one, I think it's fine. I think it's, it's going to be great. Dustin Johnson Especially won with- the one in November and he set a record when he was 20 under par. Do you think then that based on what you're saying, do you think that people really look at that as the record or do they say that was, no, the conditions were different. The course wasn't very hard. We, we don't really count that one. That's an asterisk. That's a Barry Bonds home run record sort of thing. Well, I don't think so. You've been to Augusta and I know a couple other guys that have been, I don't know if that one ever plays easy. Sure. Put an asterisk beside it if you want to, but I, you know, I, it's hard to diminish the fact that you win the Masters. I mean, the Canadian Open has been all over the place. It's been after the British Open. It's been in June. It's been in July. Does it diminish the fact that you win the Canadian Open if it's not the same time every year? I don't think so. The conditions are different. As a matter of fact, if you set a, uh, a record at the Canadian Open at 20 under, whatever the record is, perhaps you know it. I don't. If you set the record, the guy you beat might have played it in a different time zone. I mean, it's not even played the same course every year. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and, and yeah, you could set the. I don't know what the record is to be honest, but you could, you could set a record and it be on a very, very, very different course. Absolutely right. Where the Masters, that's the one thing that is so unique about the Masters, and I think one of the reasons why people love one of the reasons why they love it so much is all the other majors move around every year to a different course. The Masters is at the same place every time, so you can, you know, in sports we always try to compare. We always try to say, well, you know, was Gordy Howe really better than Wayne Gretzky or was Sidney Crosby better? The Masters is the one thing probably that we truly can compare because it's similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar to what it was when Bobby Jones was playing there. And it's the same course. And and it's as close as you can get to being able to compare era to era. Well, they've, they've lengthened it, but they I think they've adjusted the golf course to the golf equipment. So I don't know if there's a real dramatic difference, if that makes any sense. There's nothing like watching the Masters. I mean, you watch the highlights, and I got home and was working from home for about half an hour today, so I flipped on the golf channel. And they were showing highlights of, you know, some amazing shots from all the various guys that did it back, Nicholas Palmer, right back. The place looks like, and again, you've been fortunate enough to be there. 
It looks like when they play there, no one's ever played there before. It looks brand new. It's unbelievable the condition it is. I mean, it's it's like they don't ever let anybody play there except the guys that are going to play in the Masters, and then they close it. Now, I do, do know they haven't closed a lot of the year, and it probably hasn't been played on by members for two months. That makes it easy. But it's just so pretty, so unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's very majestic. What will um, – so Mackenzie Hughes qualified this year because he made it into the um, – uh, what do you FedEx call it? The, top 30. Yeah, FedEx top 30. Because he made there, he gets he qualified. So from Dundas, McKenzie will be playing. Tees off Thursday at 11.30 in the morning with two guys that you've probably never heard of. Uh, nonetheless, he's he's there. What would be, I talked to him about it yesterday, writing something for the paper for tomorrow. What would be, in your mind, a successful tournament for him i'll tell you after you answer i'll tell you what he said but what do you think would be a successful tournament for mackenzie hughes well i'm sure max said he'd want a win um but i think i think a top 10 would be pretty outstanding and anything can happen right he missed a cut last time he played but i think a top 10 finish short of a win would be pretty pretty special yeah so what i mean he said that he he expected to be in contention on Sunday afternoon, which is, you know, that can be taken broadly, but I, I think that the, you know, the, the, you know, within four, five, six strokes on Sunday. And I think he would be probably pretty thrilled with that. And I think most Canadian golf fans, especially Hamilton golf fans will be pretty thrilled with that. Um, wh- one of the, one of the things, and again, this is what I wrote about or part of it, but he played there once before Don, he played there in 2017. And that year, was some of the worst weather that players who had played there for a long time had ever seen. And it was bitterly cold and the wind was absolutely howling and then it would stop dead and then it would pick up again. And it was howling so hard that putts were being affected by the wind. And one thing that Mackenzie said about this is that, you know, look, you're never going to complain about getting to play the masters, but in some ways it kind of, he felt disappointed or almost ripped off a little bit that he never got to play the course the way that the course is supposed to be played. And, and look, I stood there and watched and he hit a shot on number 11. The guy who he was playing with uh, Steve Stricker and uh, Ustazen that day. And I can't remember which was which, but one of them pulled out a club and it's a downhill green, a downhill fairway onto a green. One of them pulled out a club. Wind is howling hits a great shot, it looks like, and the wind picks it up and carried it about 30 yards past the green. And these guys don't miss by that much by picking that. So that was a wind. Well, the next guy gets up, adjusts for it, pulls back a club, the wind blows the other way, and his ball hits a wall and drops almost straight down about 20 yards short of the green. Now McKenzie's up third and you're like, okay, what do you hit? And... You know, so I, I, you know, he's, he wants, and I, I understand completely. He wants to be able to play this course the way that the course is designed to be played. And that doesn't mean easy by any stretch, but just not unfair. Cause I think it was almost unfair last time and no, not to do with anyone's fault. It was just crazy. Nobody was under par of that tournament almost. Well, yeah. And you, all you, now you can argue that everybody played in the same conditions. But Mac makes a good point. I mean, if it's going to be drizzly all day, then it's drizzly all day for everybody. 
But when you get unusual wins, and that's why I think, Scott, what they do is, well, it is why they do it. Uh, one day you have a early morning start, and the next day you have an afternoon start. Yep. Because perhaps typically, if you're in Florida or something, you know, the winds don't come up till the afternoon. So your first two rounds should be similar conditions, you know, you, you have to face. But you're right, if they're that unusual, and, and we've all seen golf tournaments where it's beautiful in the morning and then the bad weather comes in and the guys are playing in raincoats. Is that fair? No, it's not fair. But when you take the Masters and you get your first chance to play in the most prestigious tournament likely in North America for sure, maybe the world, outside the Open, that would be an argument. But you want just a fair chance. You don't want to have to guess. And then when you see those two shots, you go, so now what do I do? Take my putter now, out? Exactly. I mean, you almost well, exactly. get it on and, the ground. And to be fair to Mackenzie, I want to be clear. He wasn't complaining that it was unfair. Like he, he, he never would say that, that it was unfair to him. The unfair part was he didn't really feel like he had an opportunity to try to play the course under normal conditions that would let him test himself as well. And the, the other part of that was that week, Monday's practice day was rained out. Wednesday's practice day was rained out. So he got, you know, instead of having a chance to play it three days before to learn the course, you really get one, one round. So there was a lot of stuff there that was, you know, that was tough. And so I'm personally, I'm glad he gets to go back. I'd like him to go back a lot more times, but I'm really glad he, at, at, we don't know what his career will be. I mean, his career has been picking up and it's been doing very well, but you never know what's going to happen around the corner, but I'm glad he gets at least another chance on a week when it's supposed to be really nice weather to at least be able to have a crack at it and say, you know what, regardless of what happens, at least I got to play this course the way it was designed to be played. Yeah, and if, and if he doesn't do well, the course beat him, and he, he didn't play as well as perhaps exactly. he wanted to. Back exactly. to his point, if he wants to be in contention on Sunday, he will be in the top 10, like I suggested. And today he got to play with Corey Connors, who's a buddy of his from Kent State, and he knows because he played in you know Ontario Amateurs and all that. So, I mean, they know each other very well it seems like they're friends and mike weir so the three canadians played together and you gotta think that they were picking mike weir's brain on all kinds of different things because he's been there forever he won it might be 20 years ago now but mike weir won it a long time ago but he'll know the course very well so that will bode well for both uh mckenzie and uh, Corey connors and I'd like to see uh, a couple of them on top of the leaderboard come Sunday afternoon. I'll be watching. Well, and yesterday he played with Larry Mize, who was the guy who chipped in maybe, well, in the top five most famous shots in Masters histories, the chip in to win in a, I think it was a playoff, but it was 20, 25 years, 25 years ago probably now. So yeah, he's he's been going after the the veterans to try and learn everything he can as well. So we'll see. But uh, again, 1130 Thursday morning, he goes, and I think it's 11, sorry, then it's like 8.30 or 8.40 on Friday morning is his uh, start time for the second day. We'll be watching. Don Robertson, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this today on a day late, but uh, not a dollar short. <laughs> Thanks for toughing it through tonight. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.